Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Kari Pitts, forensic scientist and mineralogist. Kari works with physical evidence, analysing the remnants of everyday life left behind at crime scenes. Join us as we speak to Kari about her journey to forensic science, working with physical evidence, and how it's not quite like CSI. Good morning, Kari. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. It's wonderful having you speak with me today all about your work in forensics. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So you got started studying in forensics and analytical chemistry at university, but what motivated you to do that? Uh, well, so I told my mum when I was four that I was going to be a mad scientist when I grew up, um, and I like to think I'm as legally close as I can be to being one. <laughs> That's what I like to <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I, t- I was about four, running around. I was born in, uh, in Parabadou, up in the Pilbara, up north, uh, running around predominantly outside, but always fascinated by everything. You know, my favourite question and the question that I bugged my dad with repeatedly was why. Why is this? <laughs> why is that? Why is that? Typical, you know. He always yeah. said that he couldn't get anything done with that little blonde head popping up and going, what do we <laughs> Um, yep. so that kind of, it's kind of tumbled into a fascination with science in, in primary school. I had, um, very science and maths driven year four and year five teachers in primary school. And they really, really challenged me, um, in terms of what I could, uh, what I could do and what I could learn and, and, it's sort of that fascination and still fed that childlike curiosity, but also pushed me to go, okay, well, you want to know why go find out, you know, this is the resources that you need. This is the types of questions that you need to ask, go find out. Um, and so when I was at high school, looking around at what to do, chemistry was by far my best subject. You're talking like a 15% difference between chemistry and Ooh. everything else. So That's it cool. was, it was logical for me to go into chemistry. Um, I like it. It's logical, but it's it's fascinating because you can't technically see it. You can only see the byproducts of it. Yeah. Um, so looking around at what to do at the end of year 12, basically, you know, you've got to pick your subjects. Uh, and Curtin University were offering a brand new course in forensic and analytical chemistry. And nice. I'd like the questions of the analytical chemistry, you know, determining why and what and how. So having that forensics, I wasn't really sure what it meant. CSI had only just come out and I was like, I don't think that's particularly real life. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things that you go, well, we'll give it a go. And so yeah. I put in to do forensic and analytical chemistry and I was one of the first students in Western, or first batch of students in Western Australia to start the degree. Um, we did lots of chemistry, didn't touch anything really forensics until third year. It's a little bit different now. Um, the same yeah. course is still offered. It's offered as a major within the chemistry degree. But uh, basically was, you know, really liking the chemistry, was still quite good. And so was able to get the grades that allowed me then to go into honours and do an honours degree uh, in forensic chemistry. Loved the project that I was working on, loved the supervisor that I was working with. 
wasn't quite ready to get a, a proper job, so I applied to do my PhD <laughs> and, uh, and, and got into that and then finished the PhD and started here at Chem Centre. So that's where I've been uh, since 2006. That's so cool. So what does forensic chemistry involve at the course level? Like how, what makes it forensic? In a nutshell, forensics basically means what traditionally it means of the forum. And that's ancient Greece. It's you know where the uh, the trials were trialed by a, a decider of facts based on a group of peers. And nowadays, forensics means anything applied to the law. So you can put forensic in front of everything, and as long as you've got the base science and the scientific knowledge there, you can then apply it to the law. So forensic chemistry is chemistry applied to the law. Now, my area of forensic chemistry is trace evidence. So I do physical evidence, uh, paints, glass, gunshot residue, arsenic accelerants, uh, lubricants, fibres, uh, and uh, soils and minerals, which is uh, a little bit different than some forensic chemists would be because I have a geology background as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so forensic chemistry overall is any type of chemistry applied to the law but my specialty is trace evidence that's very cool so did they actually cover the legal aspects as part of the course the degree was very heavily chemistry you have to have the base science yeah. you have to be able to understand why the tests do the things that the tests do uh and why the um you know, results are the results are Yep. But in right. terms of the, uh, the the forensic aspects, it's things like yeah. chain of custody um, oh. and evidence laws, so what you can and can't say about particular things. But all of the things that are forensic-focused are usually dealing with the law side of things rather than the science side of things. So it's... It's a lot easier to understand the base science first and yep. then do the forensic aspect because you're then applying your knowledge um, to yes. the actual law that way. That is very, very cool. Yeah, because it gives you a different perspective on the way that you, know, you approach your materials and you approach your samples because of the way that you have to consider things like chain of custody and all that other stuff. That's very cool. Definitely. So you've got to be able to you've got to be able to prove that what you're analysing is what was originally found. So there's a large amount of work that goes into that proof of chain of custody, you know, mm. evidence sealing at, at the uh, at the crime scene um, or, or wherever, um, and then all of the paperwork and all of the proof as you follow that exhibit where it's been to ensure that what I'm testing is exactly what was seized or what was the actual sample to start with. You've also then got the complicating factor that forensics is history. It's already mm. happened and you're trying to reconstruct what's happened. So therefore you've got things like a risk of contamination, you've got the risk of things changing, and you've also got a major risk in the fact that what you have might not necessarily be representative of the original sample. So say, for yeah. example, soils someone walks through a, a, a muddy lot 
the issue is the sampling method that I have is someone's shoe rather than mm. a nice shovel or a nice clean area. <laughs> no um, control you know, environment. <laughs> I don't. I don't have the ability to go to the to the suspect. Can you just uh, just take a shovel and give me a little bit more of that sample? <laughs> the sample is what the sample is. So I yeah. can only do so much and so I have to be aware of the limitations of my techniques but also the, mm. the limitations of the sample itself as well yeah that's very interesting especially because like I mean even under normal research circumstances your samples are your samples and you're still you know having to deal with time and, and you know all the other things that might affect the quality of your sample over that period yep. but yeah because you have no control over the source no. in this case yeah that's yeah. So when you cool. when you're doing research, you do all of this quality control and all of this limitations of variables in forensics. Yeah. You don't have a choice. You can try to minimise as much. Like you try mm. to make sure that your sample is packaged appropriately, that you don't lose part of it. So say with a, a, a fire debris from a house burn, um, when we get the ignitable liquid residue samples, they're in a container that is meant and is designed to prevent the loss of vapors. So that's yes. one way we can be assured that what was at the scene is what we're analyzing. Mm. Um, clothing, for example, if it's, if it's folded in and put in with some other shoes, you've then contaminated it with whatever was on the shoes. Yeah. So you've got the risk of maintaining that capability or maintaining that integrity of the sample by all of the packaging products, which sometimes we have no control over. Yeah, because you're not the one doing the collecting. <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 yeah, and that's sometimes the situation that we run into is the way it works in Western Australia is the police or the crime scene officers go out to the crime scenes and their job is to collect and, and record and uh, package all of the evidence that may be of interest in that particular case. And then mm. they send it off to the individual laboratories for analysis. Chem Centre does some of it. Pathwest do forensic biology. So they're doing mm -hmm. the DNA testing and the blood testing. So they'll have particular processes that they need to ensure are done. Uh, and then the police have their own in-house laboratory for things like uh, fingerprints, ballistics and tool marks. So yeah. depending on where it's going, you might need subtly different ways of packaging or subtly different ways of taking the sample. And that can, uh, can cause issues. <laughs> Sometimes you open up open up an exhibit, and you're like, "Oh, this is uh, this is not what I was hoping for." But oh, it is no. what it is. You do your best that you can do. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, because each kind of lab or each group of you know the types of evidence has to be handled in a different way. Like, can there be more standardization, or is it just the nature of the materials? And the evidence that you're working with. So we we work obviously very closely with with Pathwest and with the WA Police. We do some training into the police officers in terms of what we would like from them. They have yeah. their standard, referred to as standard operating procedures SOPs. Um, yeah. So those SOPs will actually outline the requirements, um, but sometimes they can be a little bit uh, not quite right, and so. Yeah. It, sometimes is that we actually will get phone calls from a case officer and say look i've got this particular exhibit How i'm not quite it? sure <laughs> which you know who's going to get it first or what like how to package it um, and so That's we can cool. then consult that way so, so we will occasionally get get phone calls from case officers at crime scenes going how do i sample this or how would you like me to package this so that it doesn't 
uh, doesn't interfere with your analysis or the other analyses that are going to be done after yours. Afterwards, yeah, that that's very interesting. Yeah, because do the technicians have to be trained in like the foundations of what you do, or you know, are, are they scientists themselves who happen to be working in those? jobs so police the crime scene officers themselves so there's usually two levels of the crime scene officers you've got the the general volume crime socos scene of crime Mm -hmm. officers they're the ones that will go out and process the volume crimes the break and enters someone steals your stereo breaks a window so they're quite uh, fairly straightforward. Fairly straightforward yeah. in terms of, you know, they're looking for DNA, they're looking for fingerprints as a first pass, mm. uh, and then depending on the actual case circumstances, they might collect some glass or they might collect some some other bits and pieces. So in that particular case, they're following their SOPs yeah. that we have some input into but are predominantly WA police focused. Yes. Um, the major crime guys, so the forensic field officers, mm-hmm. they are the ones that respond to major cases homicides, uh, severe sexual assaults, uh, aggravated burglaries, grievous bodily harms, and they are more trained in terms of what we're capable of, what PathWest requires, and we also will uh, do refresher training with them and we have a a good relationship with the forensic training uh, and uh, forensic training and development unit within WA Police specifically to aid in uh, in their training as well. That's very neat. So with the evidence, because, you know, they do have to think about, you know, multiple tests, multiple labs, is there an order or does it just depend on what it is? It's normally, (laughs) normally uh, there is kind of a preference. You know, it goes for fingerprints, then it goes for DNA, and then it will come to us um, Mm -hmm. depending on what it needs. But in some cases it needs to come to us before it comes to anything else or in some cases it will go to fingerprints and then to us and then of path west so we have to be able to take <laughs> we have to be able to take uh, examinations or undertake examinations under dna controlled conditions and we have that training and we've worked with path west to develop those processes to ensure that yeah. we're not contaminating it in addition <laughs> my dna is on the dna database at yeah. path west so if i do contaminate it can be excluded <laughs> it, it can be it can be picked up and i'll get a please explain um, yeah yeah, so it's uh, it's really depends on the case, but there is a typical, fairly typical order. You do the ones that are most likely to give us an identification first, because obviously mm-hmm. they're faster and cheaper. So DNA and fingerprints, usually fingerprints first, because they do the powder and then they can swap yeah. for DNA, and then we'll get the exhibits after that for things like fibres or paints or whatever. So it really does depend on the case circumstances. And sometimes I've even gone to PathWest, and we do what's referred to as a collab, where I work with their DNA scientist to process the exhibits together to make sure that we're capturing both types of exhibit uh, of yeah. evidence, the, the trace evidence as well as the DNA evidence together. Ah, so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I do, you'll probably hear me talking a lot. I love my job. It's one of yeah. the uh, – I feel incredibly lucky to still love it 16 or 15, 16 years after I started here. Um, I've been doing the same job for the whole time and I can't imagine leaving it. It's one of the things that is – very, very lucky to have kind of fallen into the area that I'm in, in that it's just 
yeah, I can't, I can't love it more, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, even though, you know, you've got procedures, you've got workflows for everything that you need to do, but there's always something different and there's always a different puzzle to solve. Definitely. And that's, so within Chem Centre, we do different types of chemistry. We have the toxicology section, so they're looking for uh, chemicals or drugs or, or materials within a biological matrix. So they are quite routine in terms of their sample preparation. You know, you take your blood, you extract it, you run the extract. The interesting part comes from them in what they find. Yeah. Um, then we've also got the illicit drug section. So they are doing all the seizures. Again, it's a fairly standard process that they go through the interesting part comes in, in in what they find again within trace evidence we just do so many different things uh, <laughs> that we get basically anything that's not biological not radioactive and not a drug we can do some form of analysis with so it means that one day i'll be looking at gunshot residue the next day i'll be looking at soils the next day i'll be looking at glass you know, and so and then you get the weird ones that pop up. You get a, a case officer saying, I just need you to analyse this and this is going to be important for a case. Um, <laughs> you get some weird requests. Um, but that being said, <laughs> so I had one come through the other day. They're like, can you analyse a seashell? Uh, and I was like, uh, okay, yeah. It's very it's specific. A, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like, we've got this, we've got this, this seashell that's come in and we need to be able to, we've got a bit of it and then we've got the rest of it and we need to kind of group or compare them together. Quite often there is a question versus known comparison in trace evidence. Yeah. And so as a consequence, you just simply break it down into its chemical components and look at how we can actually analyse those components and what type of discrimination ability that would be. It so happens mm. that I have experience previously uh, using these techniques uh, in in with the within the area, not for forensics, but for a research project that I was involved in. But it's amazing what happens when something random pops up. So I seem to be the one in the laboratory that just gets the odd cases. So I've done things. <laughs> I've done face paints. I've done egg. I've done inks and hair dyes. Um, I've done vomit. Uh, I've done like just all the weird and wonderful ones. I seem to uh, seem to get. That's fun. So tell me about the egg. <laughs> <laughs> so in, I obviously, I obviously egg. exactly. So in this particular case, I have to be. So in obviously within forensics, I do need to be a little bit cautious about what I actually talk about. Um, yeah. So I can't use identifiers, and I can't uh, discuss cases that are still yes. in the court system. But in this particular case, there was a number of eggs that were broken in a house. Uh, and the alleged offender was saying, I wasn't in there. I didn't have anything to do with it. So the case officers seized the shoes of the offender and ah. said, is there egg, egg on the shoes? <laughs> so thinking about it and doing some research and saying, okay, well, how can I determine if there is the presence of egg or not? And we have within our section, uh, within Chem Centre, we have a racing chemistry section and they obviously do immunoassays. So they're mm. looking for a bio, like almost a biochemical reaction. So yeah. I went looking to see if you could find an antibody that was specific 
for egg albumin, so chicken albumin. And funnily enough, yep. there is one. So <laughs> I did up a small little agar plate, put a hole in it, went to Coles and bought some egg and came back, <laughs> dried the egg, did some testing. And yeah, sure enough, you could actually see when I dosed it with the antibody, it made a precipitate. You made this, this immunoassay response to mm. the egg did a blank, confirmed that it was only the egg that was actually producing Responding. this reaction mm. and then uh, and then went from there. <laughs> so yes, there was there did uh, there was egg albumin present on the shoe. So that's uh, interesting. The, uh, it was a weird one. It yeah. happens every now and then. That that's very cool. Yeah. It's using the scientific process to uh, to yes. work out and answer a question. It, most primary schoolers would understand that concept of okay i've got a question how do i go about answering it so you've got to do it in a scientific methodical approach showing at each stage that the answer is what the answer should be yeah. uh, and then going through your thought process so as long as it's all documented we have under our nada accreditation the ability to do these types of of weird ones um as long as we are <laughs> Uh, we are open uh, with the limitations of the exercise. So I couldn't necessarily say that it was definitely chicken egg because there would have been potentially yeah. turkeys or other within the actual <laughs> phrase that would have given that same response. Um, yeah, and I didn't. It was an it egg. Was, it was, yeah, it's enough that it was sufficient to answer the question. Yeah, that's interesting. So with common enough substances though, like how, how would you go down excluding even further like say it was meant to be like a duck egg and you could still test for that that it was you know egg albumin but you know how do you get even narrower when they ask you these very specific questions for yeah, seemingly common substances that's <laughs> where that's where the chemical knowledge comes into it so yeah say for in that particular case say for example proving it was a duck egg versus a chicken egg so what yeah. i would do is i would look for research within the published literature that looked at can you differentiate chicken versus duck or what is something that's present in duck eggs that's yeah. not present in uh, chicken eggs. And it may be that there's a particular protein and we have a protein mm. ability analysis lab here. Um, it may be that there's a particular color or there's a particular compound that we could detect. And so you would be looking for those points of difference. And the issue within physical evidence where I work is we're dealing with a lot of mass produced products. Mm. You think about how many samples or how many tins of paint there are at Bunnings. Exactly. How do you tell them apart? Mm -hmm. And what you do is you do a series of analyses with different instrumentation that looks at different aspects of the paint. And at each stage, you get a level of discrimination. When you tie those all together, Say, for example, you start with white paint. Okay, you go, I've got white paint. Okay, yes. that's great. It's white paint. There's, it's everywhere. That's nice. <laughs> However, yeah, exactly. A white paint. Woohoo. Yeah. For us, that would be considered fairly low evidential value. But if you say, okay, it's white paint and it's binder or it's glue that holds it together, it's an acrylic paint. So straight away, you can rule out all of the oil based paints. It's not. Mm -hmm an oil-based paint, it's acrylic paint. Okay, yeah. so now it's white paint with acrylic. Okay, so now in addition to the acrylic, we look at the pigments. It contains titanium dioxide and barium sulfate 
and calcium carbonate. Now they're all three fairly common pigments, but finding all three is a characteristic that not all white paints have. Mm. And then if you really wanted to take a step even further, we could look at the impurities or the trace level impurities that are within that paint itself that are characteristic um, of the geochemical location where the titanium dioxide was first mined and then all the refining process that has gone through. So you can get down to that really strong level, which is what we do with glass. Um, don't yep. routinely do it with paint because paint has its own issues, but <laughs> at each step you're looking at how much within the general population or how many other samples are the same. And yep. sometimes we can't, we have to be, you know, it's, it's blue cotton or it's you know, one of the most <laughs> problematic things we have at the moment is colourless cotton. You think about mm. how common cotton is in the environment and white cotton or colourless cotton because it's not actually coloured. Um, yeah. This colourless cotton or white cotton is considered just useless because you can't do anything with yeah, it. There's no, there's no way you can isolate it. Yeah, but if you really wanted to and it was really important, there are techniques that have been developed that are published within the scientific literature that we could potentially go down. So you but can... obviously those get more expensive as the more, more detailed you have to get. more time framing, exactly. So for us, yeah. we'll start with the basics and if we can discriminate at that first level, uh, then... You don't need to go any further. You save some money and we also save our time. Um, so yeah. at each step, you're looking at that next level of discrimination. So mm. people always ask me, what's your favourite instrument? Um, I don't know. if you can... <laughs> It's a microscope. Yeah. yeah. That's um, cool. <laughs> my fav my fa all of the things so i work on instruments that are worth over a million dollars but my favorite instrument is a is a microscope because yeah. if you can see it you can get some form of information from it and it's the first step in any forensic analysis it's look at yes. it. what does it look like that's awesome so because some of these processes do become very expensive in terms of money or time have you ever come across or come up against budgetary problems in having to, you know, figure these problems out? If uh, yes, there is always a there is always a a thought process that in terms of is this cost justified for the case itself? Um, yeah. So yes, we we do have occasionally case offers that say, okay, that's sufficient. We don't need to. Uh, it's not necessary to go any further because we have DNA or we have fingerprints, so therefore your, your analysis is no longer required. Um, but mm -hmm. that being said, we are an independent agency uh, away from the police, so they can say we don't recommend it. Um, but mm -hmm. if I think that it is justified and required and will limit my opinion, because that's obviously what my report is, is my opinion yes. of the evidence, if I believe that the analysis that I have done is not sufficient to make a proper opinion, I will then just go off and do it, um, mm. with, especially within the instrumentation that we have within the laboratory. Um, yeah. We are well equipped in terms of our instrumentation and our expertise for that instrumentation. So, yes, there are obviously I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to be asked to do a really really long extensive analysis uh, costing thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for someone who's had their window broken 
it's, yeah. it's, it's not justified. But that being said, if that offender has then broken multiple windows and they have that evidence, then it may be that that is what's required. Yes. So in terms of my cost and my, uh, my expertise, yes, I am expensive, uh, but in some cases I am what's needed and so therefore that's why I'm here is to do mm. those types of analyses where DNA and fingerprints are not enough. Yeah. And that's, that's fascinating as well, because as part of your job, you do have to, you know, present in trials and in court. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I testified two, I testified yeah. two weeks ago. So, uh, and that is part of our training. And it's also part of the forensic training that you get is explaining your science to juries, because that's yes. sometimes where a lot of, uh, high level scientists struggle is how do you explain your science to someone who doesn't know your person. science yeah and as a consequence within forensics we have to we have to testify as an expert witness we're there to aid the the jury and or the judge or the the case officers themselves in in terms of understanding what our evidence is how we've done it and what it means the strengths the limitations our interpretation of that uh, and we will have to go to court to testify. So I get I get suited up, um, I, I go along and I give my qualifications, I'm qualified as an expert witness, and then I'm led through the evidence that I have in terms of what I've done, what techniques, and what does it mean uh, in terms mm. of, you know, typically it's a question versus known, sometimes it's an identification. Uh, the, it really does depend on the case as to whether I'm even required or not. In some cases, I don't go to court all that often. Mm. Uh, I think in my 15 years here, I probably testified about, it's probably close to 30 times now, which is not yeah. that much. Uh, it really does depend on the Because most of the case, you just, yeah, because most of the time you just, you submit your opinion and that information is adequate for whatever process they need to conduct. Yes. So you see on television that, you know, sometimes the, they can get quite hostile towards the, <laughs> all of the scientists and the evidence. Like, does that come up or is it usually a more straightforward question answer type thing? It depends on the, in the on the defense lawyers. Uh, <laughs> we've, I've worked some fairly high profile cases and, and testified in these, into these cases. But that being said, it's still a professional situation. And so we're mm. not there as a personal, we're not there as a person, we're there as an expert. So as a consequence, yeah. if they are uh, questioning, they're not questioning me, they're questioning the science. And so yes. I always, I, I do pride myself on ensuring that the limitations of the techniques that I'm dealing with and that I'm using are clear, but also mm. not understating the evidence. And that can be a challenge, yes. especially in cross-examination or normal examination by the prosecutor you can't overstate the evidence you can't say mm. yes this hair definitely matches this person well, no because you can't say that you can't yeah. say that because you don't know how many other hairs from how many other people would look exactly the same you know the, the yes. very risky uh part of of forensic hair analysis you know, the fbi has been criticized and and admitted that there was a major issue in the way that they presented their evidence that being said, though, finding a dark hair when an offender or a victim is blonde 
that is a distinctive difference that is actually of evidential value. Mm. So not overstating the evidence and not understating the evidence, but also just engaging with the the examination and the cross-examination in a professional manner. So I've never yeah. been personally attacked and I've, I've had questions, you know, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this? And it's, you can say, uh, yes, I agree that in this particular circumstance, I don't know how many other cars would be painted exactly the same way. However, yeah. what is the likelihood of finding that particular paint at that particular time, at that particular place with the other one? or the other paint yeah. being transferred both ways. So you kind of, you, as I mentioned, you can't overstate the evidence. You can't say it's miraculous, it's definitely this, because science is not like that. There's no. always going to be that level of uncertainty. Uh, mm. But also it is useful evidence. You just have to ensure that the jury or the judge and the lawyers are clear on, on what that use actually is. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Was it because you did have to get training to be able to present mm -hmm. in court? I know some people who would find that very challenging as an experience. Like, is it just something you get used to over time? <laughs> it de I think it, it, it depends on the person. So yeah. for me, I never really had a major problem public speaking. Um, I, through primary school, through high school, when we had to do, you know, you have to do those presentations, we have to do an oral presentation, and there'd be people in my class that would be absolutely petrified. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky in the fact that as long as I had prepared something, I didn't learn it by rote, and I still don't learn things by rote. Mm. I, can't, I can't work like that. Yeah. I have to kind of have touch points that I know I need to talk to, but then I just, you know, kind of wing it. So for me, I would get very, very nervous two minutes beforehand. <laughs> so I worked on those techniques that helped me relax immediately at that particular time. I'm fine in yeah. the lead up. It's that two minutes that I just go. <laughs> and so for yeah. me, that's what I worked on. And so I would practice when we, when we first go to court and we start the, the, the training within it, you're asked, you know, you have to go through a series of standard questions. Do you swear to tell the truth or do I affirm to tell the truth? Do you swear or affirm your, mm -hmm. uh, your, your testimony? Um, so I kind of practiced that a little bit. It's better now that you, you can actually read it. So that's, that's <laughs> nice. I can just, I can do, and that helps me calm down. So I've learned that I can read the affirmation because I don't, I don't swear on a Bible. I'm, I'm a, a I affirm instead. So it's basically yes. my, uh, my promise. So I yeah. can read the affirmation and that helps me calm down because as I'm walking into court, there's the lawyers, there's the defendants, there's the judge, there's the jury. <laughs> I'm walking That's in. What's going on? <laughs> exactly. So I focus on shoulders down, putting my case file down onto the desk, holding the affirmation and slowing down my reading of the affirmation yeah. Once that happens, the next thing is my name and my qualifications. Mm -hmm. So they are the things that I have practiced to yeah. help me relax. Once I'm into it, I'm fine. 
that's that's not that's a good. problem. Although <laughs> occasionally I stumble over analogies. I, the one that I went to a couple of weeks ago, I went down the rabbit hole and I was sitting there going, just stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. <laughs> but we got around the right way. It was, it was only afterwards that I was like, oh, that was a perfect analogy. Why couldn't I think of that at that particular time? <laughs> Always happens. But Always. it's within our training we go through those things of, you know, what to expect. We go to visits for a courtroom. We do mock simulation testimonies as part of our training to go through and say, okay, well, what happens if they ask this? What happens if they ask that? And then you also have typically, depending on the case itself, you have a pretrial meeting with the prosecutor who will go Mm. through your evidence and ask the kind of questions. And if you are nervous, especially if it's your first or second time, we've got some junior chemists that have done that recently and being able to discuss it with the lawyer and say okay what kind of questions are they going to ask me you can also then work on bringing down your anxiety levels but I'm very lucky in the fact that I have had lots of training uh, and my personality within that sort of space is I only get nervous right at the start and then once I'm in I settle down so yeah but there are others that have had to have specific training we have voice training we have uh, anxiety training so it depends on the person uh, as to what what you are but there's always mechanisms and always things you can do to help you with that type of pressure Uh, yeah it's just working out what works for you that's great it's nice at having you so prepared (laughs) (laughs) Because it's an entirely different environment. When you're a scientist, you go, yeah, I'm going to be a mushroom. I'm going to do my work and get yep. things done and figure things out. You know, if you present at a conference, it's a bit different. It's sort of one way you get question time. But, you know, it, it's an entirely different environment to having to, you know, present in that fashion in a courtroom. And, definitely, you know, it's, yeah, it's a different sort of mindset that you have to have when you approach it is. that circumstance. It is. And it, it has meant that all of my outreach, so I'm very, very passionate about doing a lot of outreach uh, in terms of the fact that I think that kids have the best ideas and the best engagement in science right from the get-go. Like, I've got two kids myself, but even before them, I was heavily involved in outreach because I think it's important for them to see all of the different options that they could possibly do when they get to be grown up because I yes. never knew that my job existed when I was going through primary school and high school. It was, you know, That's right. forensics was non-existent. I didn't know what it was. Um, but it also helps me because if I can explain my science to a child, I can explain it to a jury. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You said that, you know, CSI was still fairly new when you started in university doing this course. Showing my yeah, showing my age a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah so right. the the CSI had only just come out, like yep. literally just. I think it was like a month or something before I graduated. So it really oh, had wow, really no bad. yeah. So it was, I graduated high school in nineteen ninety eight. If you would like to know <laughs> how old I am, um, but That's okay, me too. Yeah, <laughs> oh, good year. <laughs> um, being an eighties kid, you know, it's one of those things that you kind of. You saw the, the detective shows on TV and you saw the, the cop shows and it was all yeah. very high-level stuff and, and very mm. exciting and very action-packed. 
And then this new TV show came along and I'd seen and I'd read Sherlock Holmes, I'd read Patricia Cornwall and I'd read all of those other sort of crime novel bases through high school. Yeah. And so I went, well, this TV show has only just come out. I wonder how close it is <laughs> oh, to <goodness>. real life. <laughs> And looking into it nowadays, I, I got banned. My husband won't let me watch CSI with him in the room because I start yelling at the TV. That's not happened. That doesn't happen like that. That takes a week. That is not the answer to that, you know, um, when they start talking about it. And you can see the techniques that they've learned by rote. You know, it's the gas chromatography mass spectrometer. And you're like, we call it a GC. Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but... For me, the interesting part of that is I can then use it to engage with the general public. So now I talk about NCIS um, or I will talk about the other type of, you know, sort of science, true crime sort of based ones. Yeah. And I can use it. your frame of reference. In, I can use it. You go, okay, well, you know NCIS and they'll go, yeah. I go, you know Abby, yeah. She's in the lab, right? Yeah. That's me. Except I don't have... <laughs> all of this expertise i have this tiny little bit you know yeah and so you get they are semi-realistic it's a tv show they take that (laughs) they take the real life and they just extrapolate it extraordinarily but it starts it starts with the real life actual situation so it is useful in that respect in terms of yes csi is (laughs) not not actually how it happens my husband you know as i said i yell at the tv quite often um but it shows the science as a starting point it's just obviously not realistic but it's it's enough to gain your interest which is exactly Mm. what you want in some of these types it shows the options you know abby is yes she's an expert in everything but she is an expert in ballistics. There are people that I work with that have that particular role. She's an mm. expert in computer science. Again, this one person has a miraculous <laughs> knowledge, but she is she has that expertise. I know people that do that. She's a mm. toxicologist because she can look for things in blood. I work with those people. Yeah. You know, and she is me in terms of the tiny little bits and pieces of stuff that she happens to find that miraculously match this thing in the database. Oh, yeah. We won't go there. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's those things like they can't, you know, have this ensemble cast of six million people. <laughs> no. So they, no. you know, they have this one person who's meant to be representative, and you know, gives you a taste of this is the sort of thing that happens. Exactly. But it does, it does glamorize it a little bit too much. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they walk through the laboratory or through the crime scene with their long flowing hair, fully maked up, no gloves, or they might occasionally put gloves on, but they're not wearing <laughs> bunny suits, they're not wearing masks, they're not wearing all of the PPE that I would. Yeah. So it's it's definitely take it with a with a grain. It's yeah. a, it's it's good, but it's not it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> it's a start. <laughs> yeah. That's if it gets it you interested, that's enough. You can you can it use is. that as a starting point. Um, yeah. Which I think is is kind of where where I thought about it. And honestly, when I started my degree, we got told forensics is incredibly hard to get into and it is yeah. it's it's very hard to get a job in forensics because it is such a cool job you know so yeah. you are competing with lots of other people so i got told you'll never get a job in forensics wow. but i've got a chemistry degree so that's where i mm. thought 
that I would sort of, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and where I was going to go. And so for me, it was, okay, well, do I actually like the work and like what I'm actually learning? And the answer was yes. So that's why I stuck Mm. with it. So to put it in perspective, there was 20 of us in that first year degree intake. Mm. By second semester in first year, there was 13 of us left. (gasps) Five of us graduated. Oh, gosh. And I am the only one that's working in forensics of those five. Oh, wow. So Those are really tough numbers. Yes, but it's a little bit different now. It went through a phase where, uh, and that's, everyone asks me, I quite often will get asked, how do I do your job? How do I get your job? And the answer is chemistry degree with the forensic extras afterwards. If you don't have a chemistry degree, I can't hire you as a staff member. Because we are a chemistry organisation. I am a chemist first and foremost. Mm. Um, I don't do forensics first. I do chemistry and geology, but chemistry first. Chemistry and geology is my my area of expertise. Uh, And so people will ask me, I was like, do you like the base science? Well, if you don't like the base (laughs) science, don't worry about it. If you like biology, do biology. You can do forensic biology. You like geology, you can do forensic geology. You like computing, you can do forensic computing. Forensic computing, forensic finance. Like there's there's so many different ways. So many different ways. But if you don't like the base science or can't do the base science, you will never be able to be competitive in the job market Mm. to get those roles. And it's better than it used to be. You used to have to wait for someone to die or retire to get a job in forensics with the change in the generations it is actually a little bit easier it's still competitive so what i normally say to people is get your base degree then you are competing so technically you could get my job with a three-year degree that's the minimum Mm. but you are competing with people that have these phds or the honors or the masters so that's where you can do things yeah Exactly. That's where you can look at the specialization or what you really are interested in or that real sort of forensic stuff can come Mm. after. So, But if you don't have the base degree, it makes it very hard for employers to employ you. Yeah. So you said that um, things have changed since it was since you had to enter the workforce. So what sort of changes have occurred that have made it less difficult, though still difficult to get in? So there's been... (laughs) Uh, basically I have seen within friends. So when I was going through undergrad, um, I think I had over the course of my three year degree, I think I had maybe one or two female lecturers. Mm. The rest were males. Um, when I started here at chem center, um, I was the only female in the, in the section. It have been for a while, but it, that's changed now. The last three years or so, we've had a bit of a shuffle um, within forensic or within physical evidence. We're a very small team. There's only eight mm-hmm. of us in total. So um, for a while there, it was myself and five other males. But within forensics as a whole, there's definitely been a very strong shift. We are now predominantly female. Oh. The a large amount of our employees at Chem Centre within forensics and within chemistry uh, and or science in general has been 
uh, female. The chem centre itself is actually 51% female. That's interesting. So there has been that, that shift and that push towards inclusion and we are we get flexi time, we get paid maternity leave and so as a consequence, being state government, we mm. have seen that change that females are more and more and more supported within that particular role. Yeah. Um, we now have a, a director of a, a particular department as a female. We still have two more directors that are males. However, mm. at that next level down, uh, it's within forensic within forensic chemistry, it was 50-50. We actually have a vacancy at the moment. Uh, and then at that next level down, it's again sort of team leader level, so direct, or CEO, mm. then director, then manager, then team leaders. Most of the team leaders, uh, I think it's 50-50 pretty much now or near to it, that that generational shift has seen more females coming into the workforce. It's also seen a bit more of a turnover in that the fact that you don't start straight out of straight out of your university degree and then just never leave like you're here for like 40 odd years we yeah. have seen people shift and move and they move job roles or they'll 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 leave chem center so there has been that change in the fact that if people aren't happy or people want to do something else they have that option to leave and so therefore that allows more people to, to enter into the chem center workforce uh, specifically but in terms of the wider scale of things there is just that generational change that you've seen within yeah. the, that that sort of my time frame of being here that I've gone from the very young lady that was you know terrified of talking to now that I've kind of got more experience and become more senior I know that my my opinion is now valued uh, and yeah. that I can contribute and that I am contributing and have contributed long-term to, uh, to where we are within an organisation, but also where the science is uh, yep. as well. So That's forensics great. is one of those fields that is quite quite heavily dominated with, with what's probably not dominated, but there is a large contingent of females within the actual, mm. uh, within the group. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because part of it isn't always about the interest, but about the work environment and being conducive to supporting the flexibility or the fact that there are going to be different phases in life that we do, you know, go Definitely. through for different things. So exactly. yeah, it, it makes it a lot easier or easier and relative easier. Yeah. to, easier. you know, yeah, to be able to consider some of these jobs. Cause I've spoken to some people as well who went, well, I started off in computing, but I left computing because it wasn't an environment that was conducive to me wanting to live my life in a different way. Definitely. And yeah, so it like having that space and the flexibility in the work environment to be able to do that makes the entire feel a lot more enticing. It does, yeah. And obviously mm. it depends on the organisations. Yeah. Uh, I work for the state government. So mm. the Chem Centre is a state government organisation. Uh, it provides forensic and analytical chemistry services to the state of Western Australia. And as a government agency, obviously, we do get those perks of being a public servant. Yeah. Um, that being said, though, it really also does depend on the managers and the directors that are involved. Mm. So it really can vary from organisation to organisation. But I have seen, again, a shift in that uh, my boss has always said family comes first. Regardless of the situation, family comes first. 
I'm sure that there are other organisations that might not be as tolerant. And there, within Chem Centre, there are obviously other teams or other sections that might not be as, as flexible in terms mm. of the requirements of the job themselves. And yeah. so for me, I felt very, very lucky that when I had both kids, I was able to take the maternity leave that I wanted to, but come back to a role that was exactly the same as when I left. I had no yeah. no concerns and no uh, no issues returning to the workforce, whereas I know mm. that there is still within that STEM area massive risks, especially in academia. I've got some one of the, the 20, uh, 2019-2021 superstars of STEM. And so just talking with the other 60 people that are in that program, it's terrifying to see how some of them are treated still within their area that within forensics we are actually able, or within Chem Centre and other organisations like us, we are actually able to deal with these types of situations and being able to say, I am a person first Mm. and then a scientist. There are some times and there are situations that you can't, keep going you have to be able to take a step back and say no i i need i need help or i need to be able to focus on this particular aspect of my life and i've had that happen you know i have multiple times had to sort of go i just can't do this today i just need to do this instead yeah and that's fine uh the issue i think we need to make it that it's not uh that's not a problem anywhere it always mm. needs to be that in any workforce and in any job situation, the person is treated like a person first and yeah. then a worker. So fathers can take paternity leave and not feel like they're you know, doing the wrong thing. Mothers mm. can take maternity leave or mothers can go to conferences and aren't being made to feel guilty for not being at home with the kids. Yes. You, know, it's, you need to basically make society or make that culture around STEM and I know some areas do it better than others but Mm. for everyone to be accepted everyone has to be treated as their own person and I think that in some cases is definitely what's lacking uh, in the STEM field itself is basically just showing and having that support and that ability to say I need this Mm. and then working with it to actually get what you need to keep the person in the workforce. Yeah, because we're multifaceted people and, you know, there's so many different aspects to our lives other than what we do for work. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, people keep talking about, you know, brain drain as, you know, the generations change as we get older. Yeah. And it doesn't help when people don't feel that if they do have to switch away or if they have to take maternity leave that coming back is a problem or you know they have to skill up again it makes things very difficult because they have all that foundational knowledge and they can use it yeah and if you know it's a waste (laughs) exactly if they don't feel supported if they don't Mm. feel secure and supported in their job they'll leave which is they're they're allowed to Mm. but that's why you get this leaky pipe. You know, we, we spend, and I spend all this time doing outreach with children to get them into the STEM fields because I think it's important and it's, mm. you know, my passion. But if they're not yeah. supported once they're in there, they'll leave. 
And yes. that's an issue. It's a major issue within the STEM field is ensuring the longevity of the careers of the people that put in that's the right. effort to get there. Yeah, there's a lot of personal and financial investment in getting to where you want to be and Definitely. you know having to abandon that or being burned out is you know it's a waste of your potential. Definitely. And it's it's an absolute shame because who knows what mm. those people could contribute if they you know once they're lost they're gone, you lose them. So therefore you get that survivorship bias of well this is the way it is, you just have to deal yes. with it. And exactly. I hate that. I absolutely hate yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah, it feels bleak. <laughs> it does, and you can. I'm very lucky in that I can, I can see the change, and I have, in some cases at the moment, the ability to influence the staff that mm. are reporting to me. So I will always try to take the mindset of the person comes first. Uh, yeah. And I want them to feel safe and secure enough to say, I need this. Mm. You want, that's what a whole manager or a team leader or, or whatever a person in general does. Um, yes. We're social animals, social beings. We can't just keep a head down and plodding along. That will only work for so long before exactly. something has to break. And we don't yeah. want it to be the person. Absolutely, we don't want that. So, you know, we're talking about how, you know, some people have transitioned out of a chem centre and, you know, the graduates who graduated with you didn't all enter forensics the way you did. Yep. So what are the other opportunities are there for people, you know, if they don't get into forensics, um, especially, ah, you know, as a civil servant or, you know, if, you know, they end up you know, having to you know, transition out of chem centre to do something else? Yeah. So within, obviously, uh, within my, my degree, we are still chemists. We could mm. still work, like I could make a lot more money. I am state government employee. <laughs> I could make a lot more money going mining industry because there is yeah. the need for the chemical expertise within that space. So we were told mm. there are options. And even though I was doing a forensic degree, I would mm. still qualify as an actual chemist. Yeah. So that was for me an option. And that's where some of the other people have gone. They're, one's a high school teacher, one's a, a lab tech, uh, one works for a chemical company, um, and another is actually she joined the police service. She, she went and joined the police service. I'm not quite sure where she is now, but um, she that's what she wanted to do. So yeah. You still can use the expertise that you have within the STEM field. We are still scientists. We can mm -hmm. move within areas. So those people that have left Chem Center to go on to other options, they've even gone, they've gone private sector, they've gone to other government departments. So uh, Department of, uh, uh, sorry, lost mental blank in terms of where they've gone. Uh, dangerous goods. We are oh. chemists. We can yes. move into dangerous goods or mining industries or mining regulations, mm. Department of Water. Um, so all of these other scientific applications we are still qualified for. So mm. within our uh, sort of aspect, and, and that's, again, another reason why I say to people, base science first, yeah. Because if you end up with just a very, very focused forensic 
you're entering a very small market. There's a very, very big bottleneck that you'll get stuck at. Or, you know, you might be lucky and make it through, but at least if you've got the chemistry degree, you've got these other options. Or if you've got a Mm. biology degree, you've got these other options. Computing degree, these other options. You're You're not tying yourself in. And it's also good for you because it means that you've got that wide range of expertise that makes mm. you a valuable employee because you've Absolutely. learned all these other things. You never know what's going to pop up. You could one day be examining <laughs> eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. And, yeah, so you, you've got private sector, you've got public sector for forensics, and you know, it, it's great that you, know, you still get the ability to specialise in forensics to be able to have that broader range of experience because you know, even if you're not doing forensic sciences in whatever other job you're doing in that, um, foundation yep you, you still apply these principles anyway like, yeah exactly it's not useless it's, skills no and that's um i was involved uh, a couple of years ago with a, a state government uh basically a state government goal of making uh or of encouraging year 11s and 12s to study stem subjects mm. and for me the scientific or the stem basis is a way of thinking, not necessarily a job. Uh, And so if you have that experience, it can be applied to all of the other things that are outside of my expertise, but I understand the scientific process. So understanding things about vaccines, thinking about climate change, thinking about, you know, how the, the social sciences or the social areas of things, thinking about them in a scientific way is yeah. is my way of thinking because of all of the stem training that i've had previously so absolutely it makes me i think it makes me a better person because i have that stem knowledge um, yeah and that's that that stem sort of mindset which is uh in some cases uh, a challenge that's right and you know it, it really is a mindset because it's the way that you approach everything it's, it's that foundational background for you know how how you go about you know, solving problems in your life or, you know, approaching challenges. It's, yeah, it's yeah. so flexible. The For me, the biggest thing is the critical thinking that mm. comes from it. Not just saying, you know, critical thinking is not, no. It's not just automatically <laughs> disagreeing with something, no. which I think is some cases what people seem to think of. You know, you've got, to, you've got to question everything and question the science and do your research. It's like, well, no, it's not, critical thinking is not, that it's taking the mindset of okay who said that why did they say that what's the evidence for supporting their particular way of saying things and is that evidence justified yes the whole anecdotes aren't evidence especially within forensics it's hearsay you can't even (laughs) you can't even submit it to a court of law um, unless you're an expert witness and then my evidence is my opinion but yes without that critical thinking or that ability to evaluate the information you've been given you're very susceptible to manipulation and i Mm. think that's where a lot of the problems within society have arisen is that manipulation by people that have their own goals and and mindset that they want to get where they want to go Absolutely. And part of the whole questioning exercise is also not just asking any questions, but asking the right questions. Definitely. And, you know, when, if you think critically, you can figure out what the correct questions are to lead you to your next step. Yep. 
and you know that that's where the that's where we should all be doing you know what's what's the next question to ask yeah hmm. yeah but thinking about the answers you've been given as well because it's that yeah. whole active listening thing you don't yes. just ask a question and you've asked the <laughs> you question take and you ignore what, what it is yeah. you actually take in what you've heard and evaluate that yeah. and then move on uh, yes. and yeah it's it's a definite a definite it's mindset building. that yeah. has yeah that has definitely benefited me and i attribute it all to the to the stem area Gosh. and my dad francing are all those annoying questions of constantly he asked when i was a child that helps yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so many other questions I would like to ask you about all this work. We're going to be starting to run out of time. So let's see. Yeah, so we might move on to some of those soft questions before yeah. we run out of time. Cool. So what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? Uh, there's probably two. Uh, I did classical ballet for 12 Ooh. years growing That's up, cool. you know, point shoes and all the other bits yeah. and pieces. So I, uh, I did that from the time I was four to the time I was 16. That's um, a lot of dedication. It is. Yeah. And my feet, uh, and hips are paying uh, <laughs> me back for it now. That being said, I still love, I still love the, the ballet and, and my daughter, uh, has been doing it for a little while as well. She loves the, the oh, dancing so cool. and, and the ballet. Um, yeah. After after that, I uh, I started playing beach volleyball uh, and was a, a state outdoor beach nice. like, tour side player. Um, with my skin tone, it probably wasn't the best of ideas. <laughs> it was a lot of sunscreen. <laughs> yeah, it's like a but yeah, so I played I played state level uh, beach volleyball with myself and and a couple of uh, of other females. We played two sides down at the beach at nice. six thirty in the morning, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and I got a lot out of it. It was one of those things that kept me sane during my PhD. Yeah. And during my write-up of my PhD was basically oh. being able to go, no science. Put it down for a sec, yeah. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was good. That's very cool. So that, those are very active things. Is that something that you still do? As I, uh, I, it's, it's definitely dropped. My activity levels have definitely dropped with yeah. kids and, and getting older. And But I still, I still try to go for runs fairly yeah. regularly and uh, I still try to keep as active I'm not as active as I used to be uh, yeah. so for me now it's more pushed into the hobbies in terms of you know running around with kids or doing things <laughs> with the kids my daughter has uh, no chance in getting out of the science area because I'm constantly going let's do this let's do this let's do this <laughs> you know? but she uh, she tolerates me and so does my um. son um, but in terms of what I do now, it's it's probably a lot of reading and a lot of just being a person and, and sort of yeah. spending time with my family is probably what I do more now than anything. That's cool. Oh, that's a nice balance. <laughs> yeah, it is. You've got to be a person. Absolutely. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? <laughs> my dad is a science fiction fan. Uh, and so he introduced me to Douglas Adams when I was wow. quite young. So I read Ooh. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and it is still yeah. one of my favourite books uh, yes. that I love. Love that, love the movie, and I've now introduced my kids to it. Oh, uh, so, great. so Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, is definitely one of my favourites. 
Uh, mm. In terms of absolute real childhood books, um, I would probably say Horton Hears a Who, which oh, is Dr. Zeus. Yes. It's one of my favourites. A person is a person no matter how small. So, and yes. that really ties in with my whole mindset really of does. people first. Yeah. And yeah. it's, uh, I still love the book. My kids have my copy of my book and we've read it repeatedly since they were, since they were little, uh, a little problematic in terms of some of the themes within <laughs> it. But yeah. for me, what I try to emphasize is that they're all people. They're all Absolutely. persons in their own right. The who to the elephant to that the monkeys and the kangaroos, they all have their own mindset and they should yeah. be enabled to do whatever they want to do. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a good one. And, yeah, it's about that lesson. Like that's the important yes. part about the lesson. That's, that's, yeah, I don't like some of the other stuff within it, but obviously the, the, the take-home for me is a person is a person, no matter yep. how small. So, yeah, so you've got the science fiction. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that that's cool. Like being introduced to Douglas Adams young, like it, it feels, yeah. Bitch, I think it was probably but... because I'd read most of the books in the house, and he was just trying to keep me quiet. So he was like, "Here, have this, have this massive novel," and it was well, it, it was just the way, it, just the way he spoke and the way he was writing about things. It was yeah. it was amazing. It yeah, really it, sort of grabbed me. Yeah, it, it's a certain type of humor. Like it, it's. Yeah, I you still can't have be that type of humor to Douglas Adams, and it's that particular style yeah. of humor that, you know, it's observational. It's it's yeah. funny, but it's still kind. Like there's nothing cruel yeah, about it. Exactly, it's not cruel. It's not it's not mean. It's insightful and clever, which is yes. what I like. And then I went down the Isaac Asimov and the Arsene oh, C. Clarke and all those real the June series and all those other ones. Yeah. But, and that was because my dad had the books, so. Of course. It was yeah, <laughs> one of those things. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it makes you think about things in a certain way as well, because that's the period where they had all that speculative technology and speculative Definitely. science stuff. Yeah. Definitely. Awesome. And last question, what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do or what advice should they ignore? Oh, <laughs> so this is going back. I do get asked, you know, how do I get your job? How do I do what you do? And uh, my advice is always the same, base science first, then yeah. forensics. Don't get trapped into a degree that doesn't give you employable options. skills mm -hmm. and doesn't give you those options, yeah. So quite yeah. often I have seen in the past some undergraduate degrees uh, that I've been quite critical of because they get to do cool things like they can go out and they can they learn to photograph exhibits at crime scenes and they do these mock crime scenes and they do these kind of you know units that set up, when they're doing them are really really interesting and, and really cool but it doesn't give them employable skills we mm. can't hire them because they're not a chemist we can't yeah. or the path west guys are the path west staff struggle because they're not biology they don't have enough so my advice is always base science first because if you like that that's good because that's what you're going to be doing a lot of you can then do the cool forensic stuff after or specialize later on or just you know 
compete with the people that are going to be getting the jobs because you've got the strong chemistry or the strong biology or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so that's usually my advice, base science first. Absolutely. Because it's all about like all those other things are cool to do. They add a bit more colour to your foundations. They Definitely. augment your degree, but they can't exist in isolation. No, exactly. Yeah. Forensic science means science applied to the law. Without yeah. the science, you can't do the forensic. You don't know enough. So, yeah, exactly. You have to be able to go to court or whatever, understand the science of what you're working with first. Um, mm. Without that, you, you're going to struggle. Absolutely. Great advice. Okay. And so, well, thank you so much for speaking <laughs> no with <worries>. me today. <laughs> yeah running close to time so if people would like to know more about what you do where can they go oh so there are a few websites that do have uh, forensic areas within them there is uh, the Australian and New Zealand Forensic Science Society's website so ANSFIS uh, horrible acronym uh, but <laughs> they have a website so if you google them there are some options and that goes through all of the areas of forensics it's mm. not just chemistry yeah. uh, chem center ourselves has a website uh, within them uh, so if you just google chem center uh, i'm on twitter mostly yeah. uh, i do linkedin but not much mostly twitter uh, yeah. so you can find me on there but in terms of something a little bit different i always like to when i'm presenting or when i'm, I'm uh, looking at where i'm going to go and engaging i also like to uh, push the deadly science website yes, as well so Deadly science is basically bringing science to regional areas. I was born in a very regional area. I was born in Parabadu. We used to have to drive 80 kilometers to go grocery shopping. So yeah. I often do wonder how different my life would be like if I stayed there throughout my childhood. I moved mm. when I was about five. So how different my life would be now. And so I always like to plug the deadly science uh, of course. organization and science and website wherever I can just to kind Absolutely. of go if you've got a bit of spare money and you've got to be a bit engaged in the science go to them to make sure that all kids get the options and the opportunities that that I got and that I try to pass along to the people that I go and see yeah absolutely it, it's so great because I love what they do because you know it, it is hard to get a lot of resources out to rural areas and it's such a you know it's so disappointing that all these people with all this potential yes. don't have access to all these they, wonderful they programs out. and abilities. Yeah. yeah. So my mum, um, yeah, yeah, my mum's a primary school teacher uh, and she actually went back to university when she was 50 to do her mm. early childhood wow. teaching degree. That's cool. So, yeah, absolutely amazing woman, my mum. Uh, not only did she put up with me all the way through childhood, she's then <laughs> gone, gone off and done a whole bar. I've got two sisters and a brother as well. But yeah. for, for me, her engaging with the child area and, and, you know, she gets me quite often to come out and talk to her, her class. Oh, and lovely. I know that she taught me a lot about the values and the, the support that is required to get where I am. And so I do attribute my success to my mum and my dad yeah. for not only you know moving uh, to where we needed to go uh, for my dad, uh, but also just the support of finding and having that support to find out where I wanted to be. Uh, yes. And I think that's a lot of the time 
an issue with a lot of young kids is being able to find their own path yeah. and find where their passion is. For me, that's that's chemistry, but I know that it's not for everyone. So what I want and what I think the Deadly Science guys do really well is supporting that fascination and supporting yes. that curiosity uh, for all children, regardless yeah. of where they are. Exactly. And just lets them know what's out there for them, even if they, you know, can't reach it yet at least they know where to start exactly exactly it's wonderful okay well this has been such an amazing conversation thank you so much (laughs) thank you very much for having me (laughs) we might have to do a follow-up i I feel like i need a follow-up i've got so many other questions for you because there's so many things i'm happy to always talk and yeah it's all sorts of really cool all sorts of stuff (laughs) you could fall down the rabbit hole uh quite happily spend lots of time and i'm always happy to talk about my job because it's my favorite part of the whole thing that i do is uh is the science that i do amazing might have to take you up on that because there's so many other additional (laughs) questions (laughs) cool okay well thank you again and thank you very much an amazing conversation and i hope you have a wonderful day thank you Thanks. thanks very much see ya I've loved speaking with Kari about the forensic aspects of the sciences and what the work actually involves beyond the glamour of television. It's also been fascinating to learn about some of the differences between forensic roles and those in research in academia. To learn more about Kari and what we discussed on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find Kari on Twitter at ForensicChemRocks and LinkedIn, the links for which will be in the show notes. Kari also wants to make a special call out for Deadly Science, a fantastic organisation that aims to bring science books and resources to remote schools in Australia. You can find them at deadlyscience.org.au. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave a comment, and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steampowered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steampowered Show, the links for which also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.